And we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And of every spirit that confesseth not that confesseth that Jesus, excuse me, that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is uh, is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pick up here uh, where we kind of left off, where there are these active antichrists who have left the church that John had talked about over in chapter 2. These antichrists are those who have gone away into false doctrine and false teaching, especially in that day of the many different sects of Gnosticism. And so this had become such a great and deep issue, and he's having to not just preach against those things, but as well to encourage the believers who had uh, remained steadfast in the faith, to encourage them in their walk, to encourage them in their faith, and to strengthen their assurance of their hearts in the previous passages, what he has done. And now we come to this point where he's sort of preaching in an apologetic way of going, you've got to be able to discern things that are of God and things that are not of God. And as we talked about last week, everything that says it is of God or everything or everyone that preaches that they are preaching Jesus or preaching the truth does not mean that they are preaching Jesus, nor does it mean that they are preaching the truth. And as well that there is the difference today that we see that it was so popular today to say that you have your truth, I have my truth, that there are many truths. There are not many truths. There is only the truth that God has given and declared as truth. And we know this to be true. It is illogical for there to be so many truths. It is illogical for Hunter to think that this carpet is blue when I say it is red. It's red. Not because I said it, but because it's red. All right, sorry, Hunter, you were right there, okay? I, I know where you'd be on this thing, okay? You're, you're, you're with us. You're on our side, okay? But there are many who do this spiritually speaking, right? And they, well, you know, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me and, and all these things. It is a dangerous, dangerous road here. Now here, as the one commentator puts it, the false prophets are here to have said, to have gone out into the world as distinct from, from false prophets who remain within the Christian community. In the context of 1 John, this is yet another allusion to those who seceded from, from the author's community and were yet seeking to deceive those who remained, uh, who remained within it. By saying that these people have gone out into the world, the author alludes not only to the fact that they had seceded from the community, but also to their affinity with the unbelieving world, and something that will be further developed in this little passage here. Now, the Antichrist and false prophets have gone, not only gone out from the community of faith, but have uh, gone uh, against the faith. They ultimately are against Christ. To be Antichrist is to be against Christ. It is not to be for Him. It is not to be apathetic towards Him, right? Apathy is just as dangerous. Apathy is truly a step away from being uh, against. There are many who find themselves in this sort of in between in the world of which we live today. Um, what is found now in studies is that we have a couple of generations now of an ever-growing increase of what is called the nuns, right? Not like nuns, like nuns, okay? But nuns is an N-O-N-E, the nuns, meaning that they don't affiliate with any sort of religion. They don't necessarily affiliate with being an atheist. They don't really affiliate with any of these things. They're just sort of a 
whatever they feel, right? They're just, they're kind of there, right? They, they don't associate with, with anything. But really, if we look at the heart of it, it is truly religion in and of itself. To believe nothing or to not align with something is a belief system, right? This is why we would say, and we look at the many different things throughout the world, many of the false teaching, the false ideologies, false um, religions and stuff, you know, they are still faith systems. They are still systems of belief, even if their belief is that they don't believe. Right? That's their belief. They hold to it very strongly. But this is becoming an issue that they are not just, uh, there's many who are falling in this nun section, but the nun section today, right, this sort of generation, it's not that they just don't affiliate with others, but what is being found as well is that many of them and the vast majority of them statistically when answering questions, doing studies, doing polls, or even just having conversations with those that identify as such who would say, I don't, I don't hold to any particular thing. Almost all of them are firmly or adamantly against the doctrines of Christianity. They like the idea of Jesus in a robe saying and teaching nice things and being a good person, that sort of thing, but that's not Christianity, right? And so uh, what happens here is that many of them are now becoming against this sort of uh, anti-Christ. Now, Jesus talks about this very clearly in his own teaching. You're either with or, or you are against. There, there is no this sort of middle of the road here. Either you are in Christ or you are out of Christ. Either you are born again or you are not born again. Right? Either you are saved or you are not saved. You are either... Um, lost or you are found right it's very simple there's no sort of in between well you know i'm halfway in there's no gray area it's very black and white with the scripture it's very black and white with the faith and it's very black and white with jesus own teaching right many would say well jesus didn't teach about this or that um he absolutely did he was very black and white with things even to the point where a a, a guy who said I, i'd like to follow you i've got all this money i've got all this stuff uh, what must i do and he said Go sell you everything you got and pick up your cross and come follow me, right? And the guy goes away sorrowful because he had many riches, many things in this life. So we see it's very black and white. It's either all in for Jesus or ultimately it is against Christ. And I think we have to get this understanding as well because when we talk about sin, to be lost and to be found in our just and our sinful state where this is who we are. We are not born again. We're not saved. We're just in our sin. Even the most religious of people who do not know Christ are still yet in their sin against Christ. Because every sin is against Christ. And furthermore, the Bible tells us that we are at enmity with Jesus. That means that we're His enemy. We are against Him, pushing back against Him. Even the sweetest, most religious little church lady who has never repented and trusted Jesus is very much against Him. Why? Because she's living a hypocritical, pharisaical life and doesn't know it. That sounds very harsh. I know that. This is how Jesus makes it very clear and plain in his ministry with the Pharisees who felt the same. And then we must do the same as well. But we must be all in for Christ. And we must be able to discern the difference. And when we look at though, as we get to verse number two here, the word of confession or confessing the truth, the confession of the truth. I'm afraid that today one of the worst things that has taken place through decade after decade after decade is this that we have many generations who are in good solid bible believing bible preaching churches 
However, most believers today do not really know what they believe, let alone why they believe it, and even further, how they then can communicate it. This is a, a grave issue. To not be able to know what you believe about something means either one, you don't know anything of the Bible that you claim to know the God of, or that you've not been taught, or three, and in a very likely case, and, and still, regardless, no matter how you shake this down, it's still very much there, you have not studied yourself, and you must study yourself. You must study on your own to know what you believe, but not just to know these list of facts of, I believe this, don't believe that, I'll take this, throw that out, but it's to know why. Why? If you have ever been around kids long, you know that they ask a lot of questions, right? There's this sort of sweet spot, right? And they're, as they're growing up, where they have this, everything that they ask, it's, it's in the form of a question, no matter what. And normally the question is not a very long question. It's a very short one. It's only one word, and it's why. Or maybe if it's a variation of that, it could be how come? Or maybe for some of the more advanced ones, how come why? <laughs> right? I've heard that one a lot. I've asked that one a lot. How come why? I know it's not proper, but that's kids here for you, right? Constantly asking why. They don't want to just know the what. They want to know the why. And with us as believers in Christ, it should never be enough to just know the what. But We should want to know the why. Because we're going into a lost world that does not know our what. They do not know our why. And they need to know the whole truth. And this is responsible for pastors to teach but it is just as equally responsible for every believer to study and to pray and to seek the Lord. I love getting questions from people to help them out, but I love it even more when I get the text or the message or the phone call or, or the question while we're here at church that says, hey, I've been studying such and such, and I ran into this. Here's what I think, and here's why. Is that right or is it not right? Right, am I am I right? Am I a blooming heretic? Right, let me know here. Right, and to have those conversations because it does a few things. One, I appreciate that you trust me enough to ask to ask me. Two, it shows that you are actually studying and putting in effort, and that is the goal. I don't come up here to just run my mouth, even though you might think so <laughs> sometimes. I promise you, it's because I want to encourage you to then go home and to apply these truths in your own heart, in your own life, and to study these things on your own. The reason why we do booklets, does anybody know why? I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, because when I got here, about the only question I got was not, where are you from, what's your favorite color? It was, you're going to do the booklets, right? <laughs> All right, so we're doing them. Right? That's, a big, that's a big reason. Right? Two, we don't do it, or I'll give you a not reason. We don't do it to waste paper and ink or just to give Sharon something to do, all right? Or me something to do. What we do it for is so that you have something in your hands that you can mark up while you're here and have something to look back on to answer questions to study when you are not here. You know how often you guys are here? Sunday mornings, Sunday night, Wednesday nights. Total of about four to six hours, and that's if you linger in fellowship, depending on other things, right? A lot of variables in there, okay? It could be everything from about an hour to, to six hours in a week, right? Normally here, I, I live here, right? So it's about six hours a day, okay, at least. It feels that way, sometimes longer, but not on Sundays, okay? I mean, think about this, though. 
I want to put in your hands something that you've got when you're in the rest of the world, the rest of your life, the rest of the time that you're not here, to have something to find these answers so that then you can, as you're in that world, share the truth. Now this confession of truth here, first of all, the word confess is important. It is the word homologeo. It is to confess, profess, admit, declare, to acknowledge here in verse 2. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So it's the idea of every spirit that confesses or professes or admits or declares or acknowledges that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And this is important here, what we're getting to. There's going to be two things that we're addressing sort of in this little passage here. In the next couple of verses, it says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Here's the issue that John was facing. With the Gnostics of the day, and we talked about this earlier on in our introduction to the book, is that he's writing because many of the Gnostics have one view, either one or two views, or many really. There's one view that says, Jesus is God, but he didn't come in the flesh. Right. He was just sort of a spirit, sort of an idea, sort of a this sort of life lesson. But he was never actually in the flesh. Okay. but then on the other side, there were those who say he was in the flesh, but he wasn't God. Right now to believe this is to be believing an Antichrist doctrine to believe. This is to believe an Antichrist doctrine. So where do we find the Bible that Jesus is God in the flesh? And this is very important. Okay. I know that oftentimes, and I'm very guilty of it, to overstress Jesus' deity. And the reason why is because in our today's society is that so few believe that Jesus was God, right? And this is a prerequisite of salvation. Now, this is very important. He was not um, uh, the brother of Satan, right? No, he is the second person of the Trinity from everlasting to everlasting, the creator of the world, the one who is before all things, the one who by him all things exist, okay? That's who Jesus is. We have to understand that Jesus is God. We have also got to remember that Jesus was in the flesh. And there's a reason. It's because we needed a mediator who is God because only God can satisfy the wrath of God. Right? Think about this. For, for generation, generation, they would sacrifice bulls and goats and rams and all these things. And year after year, the Day of Atonement. Year after year, the Day of Atonement. Year after year, the Day of Atonement. But until the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, and to come to take away was not to come and take away for a year. Jesus didn't have to come back the next year and get crucified again. It was a once and for all sacrifice because he was perfect in the flesh in the sense that though he walked with, uh, in the same body that you and I have, the same functions and everything, he in his flesh obeyed the Heavenly Father and never sinned. But because of his deity, he could not sin. And because of his deity, he was able to be that perfect sacrifice to satisfy the very wrath of God that was pressed upon him that man could not handle by himself. Just a mere mortal man could not handle the wrath of God. Just a mere mortal man in the flesh could not even go through the, the darkness and the severity of that crucifixion process. It had to be the God-man. So first of all, Jesus is the Christ here. Notice that. He says that Jesus Christ, it is the phrase and idea of those two words. We have to have to remember this. Christ is not his last name. Okay, it is his title. 
It is the, the one who is the anointed one, the promised one, the anointed of God. The Messiah is the one who was promised there in Genesis 3 after the very first sin to one day come and crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who has come to be the Savior, the Redeemer, the Reconciler, the Propitiator of our sins, to redeem all those who would trust in Him and in His perfect and complete sacrifice. Jesus is the the Christ here. Now, the idea is that this is His deity. To be Christ means that there has to be a divinity. Now, the issue with many of the Jews then and now is that so many of them hold to that the Savior is just going to be in the flesh. There's less of the divine nature sort of thing. And this is totally why they reject Jesus um, as God. Right? They, they hold Well, he was there in the flesh, but he was just a teacher. If anything, he was a heretic, is the way many of them would look at him. This is the view even still to the day. There are many then and now who dismiss Jesus as just being another good teacher and not the promised Messiah of God. Only God, by grace, can forgive. Only God can be the true acceptor of the sacrifice, but only God Himself can even be the real sacrifice to pay the price for sins. A man cannot do it. A a bull cannot do it. A goat cannot do it. Just another person in the flesh could never do it. You, You and I could not volunteer. Why? Because we are with sin and can sin. But Jesus, because of His deity, could not sin. Therefore, He is the perfect sacrifice without spot without blemish. That's why He is the true Lamb of God sent to us. Secondly, though, the the second part of the confession is that Jesus has come in the flesh. This is His humanity. This is important here because as we talked about, you got this side who says uh, He he wasn't in the flesh. He was just sort of a spirit and His teaching kind of got taught or whatever, that sort of thing. Sort of an idea. You had those who were, He was in the flesh, but He wasn't God, right? Both of which are anti-Christ teachings. But what we are clearly taught in John's Gospel as well, and he starts this so perfectly. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When's the beginning? It's that even before the beginning. right? The beginning is caused by the Word of God Himself. right? It was God that breathed the world, the world into existence by the power of His Word. Theopneustos, out of uh, the breath of God. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He used nothing and no one to create. He breathes it out. He speaks, let there be light. There is light. And then only after the creation is made that he would take dirt and then form and fashion man and create him in his own image. He says the same was in the beginning with God. Why? Because he's co-equal, co-eternal with God, the Father. All things in God the Spirit. All things were made by him. Jesus was the the instrument, if you will, of of creation, the one who would hold and sustain. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then we move on. Down to verse 14. And the Word, that is co-eternal, co-equal with God, from everlasting to everlasting, the one who created, the one who was there in the beginning, says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the same phrase that the Old Testament has for tabernacle. It means to dwell with us, which is a prophecy fulfillment of Jesus being called Emmanuel, God with us. So for God to dwell with us, what did that need? It needed God to put on flesh. There was no more tabernacle. The temple was a mess in the way in which it had been operated. Remember Jesus' ministry several times goes into the temple 
and flips tables, right? What would Jesus do? Sometimes he'd go flip tables. He'd run people out. That's the truth. And he does this to purify his father's house, his place of worship. He says, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The God man. Perfectly God, perfectly man. The apostle here, as Sorensen writes, the apostle here specifically re, uh, refutes the heresy of the Docetic Gnostics, which by this time were already advancing the error that Christ had come indeed, but not in a physical body. Rather, they claimed he had appeared as a spiritual phantom. In other words, they held that Jesus of Nazareth was not the Christ. They claimed that Christ had come in some mystical, spiritual fashion. They thus denied the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the God-man. Then Guzik writes, Today we are passionate about saying Jesus is God. And we should be, but it is no less important to say Jesus is a man because both the deity and humanity of Jesus are essential to our salvation. Now, even today, nearly every respectable atheist or scientist today who refutes creationism and that that sort of thing even acknowledges the existence that there was at some point in time a literal man in Galilee named Jesus who taught and had a following. They do not deny the physical part that Jesus was a real person. However, they deny the spiritual that he was God. And this is critical because we see that Gnosticism did not end after a certain couple of centuries. The idea is still very much prevalent today. It doesn't, just doesn't go by that name anymore. But the ideas are still found. And I want you to know that how you view Jesus is of the greatest importance to your life, not just now, but especially for that of all eternity. I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said um, the, the, uh, something to the effect that the, the way you view God is the, the most important thing about your life. And I firmly believe that to be true. The most important thing about your life, both now and for eternity, is how you view Jesus, what you believe about Christ. Now, salvation is clearly through the God-man. We need Jesus to be God. We need Jesus to be man, and he is the God-man. Now, this reminds us of, uh, reminds me here, and I want to turn there just for, for your sakes for a moment, of Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. It, it sounds funky, but hear me out. Job chapter 9. There's a reason here. Old Job, we all know, he went through a time, didn't he? Right? Chapter 1, things are great, and then they get bad, and then they get worse. And then if it's possible, they get worser, right? And then the, the, the friends start coming and giving him ideas and thoughts, and there's this sort of inward battle for the next however many chapters until God comes and really sets the record straight. Even restoring and reconciling and making all these things take place. But there's something a very, very important here in, in Job. Job replies to his friends here at the end of chapter 9, and here, this is what he says. Verse number 32. He's referring to God here. He says, For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Now, what is this daysman betwixt us both? It is a mediator. It is the idea that Job recognizes, I am just a man. I'm just the clay, and he's the potter. What, how can I tell him to say anything? How can I tell him what's right, what's fair, what's unfair? And by the way, who can? Who can tell God such? None can. Job goes on, we later see God saying, hey, were you there when I planned the world? Were you there? 
Did you tell me how? No. Job recognizes this, but Job as well sees something, and this is a beautiful picture of what is needed truly in the life of every man and woman that has ever lived. It is the daysman betwixt God and man that can put his hand upon both. And I want you to know that daysman has come. And there upon the cross, the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, the God-man, is able to place his hand upon the holy and eternal and deity and as well down to humanity. For he has lived in our world, lived as us in our world, in the flesh. And there he is in the middle. He is being both killed by man and killed by God for the sins of those same individuals that are mocking him and ridiculing him and have nailed him to that cross. But it is for their sin that is, he, is, he is there in the middle. If Jesus could have stayed in eternity and things would have been just as fine for Jesus. But Jesus comes to be this daysman betwixt us. Because only God can stretch His hands out from eternity past to eternity future. Only God can place His hands and hold all of creation. Only God in the flesh can satisfy the, the wrath of God, can truly bring about redemption and forgiveness. And there on that cross, certainly His arms are stretched out. You can picture to some degree the idea that there he is laying hold of God, laying hold of man to reconcile the two. Because we in our sin are against God, and because we are in sin, God is therefore against us. And the only way that we can be reconciled is through this days when betwixt us. We must confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he has come in the flesh. Now then the counter-confession of falsehood says in verse number 3, and every spirit then that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So everyone that does confess that He is God in the flesh says it is God. Why? Because this is of the very root of Christian teaching, of Christian belief, uh, of everything from Christology to everything else. What we believe about Jesus is, is of the utmost importance. Now the spirit here, or teacher, that does not confess Jesus as both God and man in the flesh is not of God. The Holy Spirit confesses and promotes Jesus as both God and the Messiah in the flesh, sin of God. You can read about this. For sake of time, we won't get there today. But John 15, John 16, and then over in 1 Corinthians 12, just to give you a few examples of where uh, the Holy Spirit confesses and promotes who Jesus is, that He is fully God, that He is there in the flesh. Uh, we see this even perfectly at Jesus' baptism where He is literally being baptized in the flesh, and God the Father speaks and the Holy Spirit descends. We see then throughout the ministry of Jesus that clearly He was a real person. Countless books have been written. Countless uh, eyewitness accounts were given uh, to see not only that He was alive, but as well as that He resurrected. Think about the hundreds that saw the resurrected Lord. Clearly He was in the flesh but as well as the many and many and many who have seen, not only is He just a mere man in the flesh who taught and did good things, but He rose from the dead because He is God to offer eternal life to every sinner who would come to Him. He says, <coughs> He says, "In every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. 
And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Meaning, their spirit, their teaching, their idea, their promotion is that of Antichrist. And he says, the spirit of Antichrist. He says, whereof ye have heard that it should come, meaning in the future, and even now already is it in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is nothing new, and it's not even just something to come later down the line, right? When you think of the word Antichrist, normally you think of the Antichrist that will be there in the tribulation period and the whole terrible things that he'll do and all that stuff, right? One world government, religion, the whole nine yards, uh, the false sense of security, all the wrath, all the false worship, all that stuff, right? But the spirit of Antichrist has been on this earth. Really, we find there in the garden. The spirit of Antichrist is there as the, uh, the serpent speaks lies and deception to Eve who um, has falsely accused God and falsely accused man. And um, Then we find that slithering serpent, if you will, of the Antichrist spirit. Then further, as sin continues to corrupt generation, generation, after the flood, we find God says, go out. Leave, go, be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth. And what happens? They say, well, we like it here in Babel. and We're going to make us a city. We're going to make us a city and build us a name. We're going to build us a tower. And really that tower, mind you, is certainly a tower, but it was not meant to literally physically get to heaven, but it was more so in a defiance of the heavenly. It was a defiance in that man can accomplish whatever man wants to and setting up their own kingdom, their own ideology, their own place of of a one-world religion, one-world government, one-world system and society. It was a wicked society. It was a very pagan society. It was a spirit of antichrist society. And as we're going through Genesis, by the way, shameless plug here, whenever we get to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, we're going to go very much in depth about... um, how they got to the place that they were, and as well as how that can be traced all the way and up to today. Many of those same practices and beliefs, all right? So stay tuned, okay? Um, but not only do we see it in the garden, we see it in Babel, but then every single pagan religion and society ever since. It's a spirit of Antichrist that powers the pagan. It's the spirit of Antichrist, not only for those who maybe promote Satanism or Wicca or many of the Eastern mystical um, religions and beliefs that are openly practiced and promoted, unfortunately, even in many churches today. It is a spirit of Antichrist that has brought a resurgence of the uh, Nordic uh, religions today. There's a, a big uprise in, in those things, as well as the, the Druid uh, religions and, and many of these pagan ways of worship. This is a spirit of Antichrist that is working overtime, if you will, because I believe the days are short. But furthermore, all these things are to happen to bring about the time and the place to where then the Antichrist steps on the scene and says, boom, I've got your peace, I've got your answers, follow me, and the world will blindly say yes. But until then, right now, what is happening is folks are still doing the same thing, but without one central figurehead. They're doing the same thing by following and practicing the unbelief, the false doctrines, the spirit of Antichrist, the wicked views of Jesus. Wherever you find a false view of Jesus or Christology, there you have a spirit of Antichrist. He says it's already here, but it's also should come. Meaning that it's already and not yet. Meaning like for you and I, we think about this. 
You and I are citizens of heaven. Already and not yet. Does that make sense? It sounds strange. Uh, it's sort of a, a paradox, if you will. Or, um, but it's this, that we are both now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But yet we're not in heaven yet. Y'all know that, right? Hillsville is nice. It's not heaven, okay? Krispy Kreme donuts, hot and fresh, are nice, right? But still not quite heaven. They'll be in heaven, I think, <laughs> right? I ain't got chapter and verse, but neither do, you, neither do you, okay? We're already seeing it, but yet it is still yet to come. Does that make sense? The Spirit of Antichrist is already here. We see it. You know, the why, you know why the world's getting the way it is? The Spirit of Antichrist. But to lead to the day where there is the Antichrist to come. But guess what, church? We're not looking for the Spirit of Antichrist. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the Christ to call us home up and out of here. Right? He has come once, He is resurrected, and He will come again for His people. That's what we're trusting in. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're working for. And now is not the time to sit on and wait for this ride to be over. Now is the time all the more as these days approach and uh, things get worse and worse to continue to witness and to be the salt and light in this world until Jesus does say, now's the time. So the Antichrist spirit has always been influencing souls by deception of the truth. will reach its peak with the future Antichrist who will bring the entirety of the world under an umbrella of false peace, false hope, as the false Messiah, and he will be an antichrist. But please know this, that we are called to not be fooled, to not be gullible, to not be naive, but we are called to discern the difference between that which is of God and that which is not. But you will not know that which is of God if you do not know God and if you do not know his word. I can't know God's word for you. Neither can anybody else. You must know God's word for you. So let's get in the Word of God, trust the Word of God, live the Word of God, and wait for the day that the Word of God will sound and call us out of here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful for this time that we can study your Word. Now, Lord, you are good. You are faithful to us. I pray, God, that now that you would prepare our hearts uh, to be strengthened by you, to be used in this world, and Lord, help us to be discerning the times and discerning uh, the teaching and the truth and the falsehood that is all around us. I pray, God, that now that you would as well, Prepare our hearts for this worship service, and Lord, that you would be glorified and honored in all things. And uh, God, we just are, are grateful for the day that you've given to us that we can meet and gather together as the body of Christ. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all. Take a pause for the calls. Any guys that want to come pray, we've got a men's prayer room over here, and ladies got one right in that hallway as well.